Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm the founder and CEO of mission.org and the host of Mission Daily, the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Mission Daily was recently selected as best of 2018 by Apple for a reason. In every single episode, you're going to learn actionable strategies that you can apply to your life to become healthier, wealthier, and wiser. On this episode of the Mission Daily, Ian is joined by David Mount. David is a partner at G2VP and a partner at Kleiner Perkins. He has more than a decade of experience in venture capital and working with sustainable technology companies. This is part two of David and Ian's conversation. To hear part one and learn the difference between missionary and mercenary founders, go to mission.org daily. In this episode, they talk about why sustainability is critical for every company. They also discuss dark nights of the soul and why they are important for personal and business development. Enjoy this episode. You know, Clayton Christensen, you know, famously said that disruption happens when you have a solution that's exponentially better than nothing, yep. right? And, and that's yep. kind of the way it's like, that's why it's the desperate people buy from startups, right? It's yep. like, if the solution is exponentially better than nothing, then, you know, it's, it's, it changed the world. I mean, you look at putting IoT on like wind turbines, for example, yep. something like that. You're talking about for however long, I, I don't know when we put up the first wind turbines. I mean, we've been using wind We've been harnessing wind for, I mean, I don't know, like a thousand years, yeah. I, you know, something like that. And now we have these, now we can put devices that track everything, the exact angle that these should be facing, every single piece of this to optimize. And I think a lot of times when this idea of sustainability came about, people just said stuff couldn't be done. We couldn't get enough energy from something like wind or solar, or we couldn't do it. But you see the improvements in technology year after year that now, you know, the, the solar roofs that we put on our houses 10 years ago are like, you know, exponentially worse yeah. at this point in time. And like, that's what's exciting. I mean, the, those sort of things. Why is sustainability a critical part for every company to build? The way that we think about it, sustainability means good business. So if, if you're thinking about building a business sustainably, you're thinking about building a business where its work makes the world no worse off than if it wasn't doing its work, or ideally you're making it better off. And that is both in terms of the footprint of the product that you're building or the way that the, the power is getting built or the efficiency that the network works at, but also in the way that employees go to work, in the, in the way that employee culture works, in the way that team structures are built and all of it. I think that businesses that are focused on sustainability our hypothesis is, and our experience is that you can build better products that way, that are cheaper and better designed. You know, you think about a Nest thermostat versus a, a Honeywell thermostat. No knock on Honeywell there, but 10 years ago, what the Nest thermostat could do and looked like versus what uh, the off-the-shelf thermostat you could buy from from Home Depot, it was, a, it was leaps and bounds different and it kind of pushed that whole industry. So better products yeah. that are cheaper. Sustainable companies are thinking about, in order to be exponential, like, you, like the, that Christensen adage, you need to have a better, a cheaper product too. So if you can build an industrial drone, one of our portfolio companies is a, is a company called Kespri that's using drones for insurance inspections after hailstorms or to do commercial building inspections mm -hmm. to look for hotspots on roofs or look at the, the health of a solar installation. The drones now are a 10th of the cost that they were 10 years ago, or maybe a 50th of the cost that they were 10 years ago. So you're able to build a cheaper product that can do better work and that is sustainable. I mean, well, you're talking to a guy, my dad has been an insurance inspector for 50 years. Yep. So I can guarantee you that, uh, 
he would uh, he would agree with uh, with that sentiment. Well, and and the work and it leads to better it leads to better work. You know, it's it's safer, it's faster, better outcomes for for uh, homeowners that are happier with with how it goes. It's no compromises. And well, I, well, really quick. So this is one of those we we talk about it a bunch in future cities. And we talk about it kind of often here, but there was this technology that was created back in the day that was like really disruptive and people were kind of like on the fence about it. And the politicians were like super on the fence about it. And they're like, it's dangerous, causes fires, you know, all this stuff. And it's taking jobs from the lamplighters. And that was electricity. Yep. Right. So it's like the idea that, you know, like my dad spent, you know, 50 years as an insurance inspector, you know, taking photos of this sort of stuff is like, you know, is that job going to be around a hundred years from now? Like no way. Like it's just not going to be. It doesn't take away from the fact that this job was necessary for the last hundred years, but it's not going to be around. And and that's the sort of thing that's like really tough for people to imagine with innovation is like these things that a robot can do better or a technology can do better. And it's like, oh, these might be taking jobs. Like, no, someone's got to make those robots. Someone's got to program those things. Someone has to create those drones like that. The jobs are in the thing, the people that are creating those things. And with kind of the startup environment, it's like there's new people working on those problems every single day. Yep. And and in, it, just taking that that one use case a little bit further, it's not even that, that that job is replaced, but maybe what that means is instead of suiting up and getting on a roof and latching into the roof and exposing themselves to a safety issue, they could be letting a drone take pictures, speaking to the homeowner, figuring out if the homeowner can use any other help from an insurance company, and then getting the results back immediately and being able to write the homeowner a check to say, hey, look, you know, yes, there was damage. We can see it. We can validate it. In fact, the home office is able to look at it and validate it. And here you are. And that's yeah, just a faster. better experience for everyone. And that's that's a future state type of experience. But these technologies, I think, may change the way that people work. But it's not it's not a replacement of the way that people work. I think that that the idea is or the aim would be that technologies are used to make processes better, make yeah, those experiences aug- better. And they're and, augmenting the human. And like they're augmenting human behavior. I mean, when we talked to uh, to Dino Roberts from Slack, he was saying they have a bunch of uh, robot security guards, and robot security guards augment a human security guard because they allow they're really good at pattern recognition. So if something is really bad that's happening, uh, they can immediately recognize like this is out of whack, and then like ping the human being and be like why is the reason for this out of whack? Is there, is there a burglar that shouldn't be here? Is there, you know, someone who's sneaking files or something like that? I don't know if nobody sneaks files, but uh, you know <laughs> what I mean? Um, but yeah, stuff like that. It's like there's uh, robotic tasks that can augment what the human being can do in real time. And like, that's where it's exciting for sustainability because you're talking about saving, you know, millions and trillions of dollars of waste. And ultimately sustainability is about waste. And you know what else is about waste? Businesses, right? Like you are solving problems for, you are creating new things that eliminate waste of resources or energy or time or efficiency. Take any product, take, you know, Salesforce, like they're eliminating waste. Salespeople spend less time doing like random stuff and now have their thoughts and everything cataloged and organized so that they can spend more time selling or whatever it is. Like that is the name of the game. So this idea of like sustainability happens to be about waste in in resources, in you know, energy or these type of things that is just like, you know, different verticals or industries, but really we're all worried about, you know, not wasting things. Right. Absolutely. One one of the companies 
that I don't think gets any hardly any credit and doesn't ask for real credit around energy efficiency is VMware. So back when VMware was was coming onto the scene, the whole idea of server virtualization was something that hadn't really existed. And the the idea there was that you needed every single job that you wanted to do required its own server. So you were going to have, if you wanted to have 100 different uh, applications running, you needed to run 100 different servers to do it. VMware came along and allowed you to, to do that on a single server. And the energy efficiency savings of that is incredible. And, and that is what leads to the data centers able to do what, what they can and run all of our data and storage and processing in the cloud now that we're all so used to. And that's Diane Green. We did a we did an episode of the story on Diane. She's, I mean, that that whole idea was like completely revolutionary. It, absolutely revolutionary. And it was also a sustainability story. It just like you said, it was reducing waste and it was enabling these processes to happen without you know, a hundred, one computer can run what 10 or 50 or a hundred eventually can. And that is how we try to think about sustainability in terms of doing more with less, being more resource efficient, using technology to help drive that efficiency quickly in these industries that haven't been thinking that way necessarily. Let's talk about our good old buddy, Elon Musk and, uh, and the dark night of the soul. So Elon is someone that is obviously constantly in the public eye. He gets, in my opinion, more shots fired at him, more pot shots randomly for no reason than than anyone. Someone who's created technologies, multiple technologies that are revolutionary. He created a car that nobody thought could be created, right? But at the same time, you've seen repeatedly in his career these kind of dark nights of the soul, these times where people still keep counting him out. And I think that this is something that is not an Elon thing. This is just a founder thing. This is just a CEO thing. And for him, he's trying to create a better world, a more sustainable world with a lot of that stuff. And obviously, you know, there's lots of different sides to this and and ultimately like, you know, how he runs his companies and everything. There's lots of different, you know, variables that go into it. But at the end of the day, he's someone who has a vision who's, who he's trying to achieve. And a lot of other founders that are building, like the missionary type founders that we're talking about, have these moments of, I'm out of money, I'm out of time, this isn't working. What have you seen from maybe your portfolio companies or in your career of people who have kind of faced this dark night of the soul and figured out a way to get to the other side? Sure. Great question. It's a great topic. And I think about it a lot. So I've been in the venture industry now for going on 12 years. And when I started, I took every one of those moments, every one of those kind of existential moments, dark night of the company moments, extremely seriously. And it seemed like every one of those episodes where here was this big customer that we were counting on and they went away. Yeah. Here was this big venture round that we were we were two days from closing and then the investor walks away. Here is this this transformational hire that we're going to make that is going to going to lead to headlines and then they get a counter offer from the the big company that they work at and they don't come over. Yeah. And each one of those can be gut-wrenching. And as an investor, we're even way more insulated from it than than as a founder. So I have a ton of appreciation for the founders who who go through that. But now being, you know, a decade into it and having seen it, I can say, and this is something that I say to to friends and and founders who who we work with all the time, is that those dark nights of the soul, those struggle moments happen for everyone. And every company that I've worked with, from the ones who haven't done as well to the ones who then go off and become public or get sold for for big numbers, there have been those moments where you think to yourself, oh my gosh, this might not work. This might just go away. And that is one of the unique and kind of beautiful things about the startup world is that these companies can be a little bit fragile and they are being built out of nothing. And 
there's a lot of angst and, and uncertainty around it. But I get some comfort now having seen it a few times and having seen companies that go through those moments and then become very, very stable and very strong to say, find consolation in knowing that that happens, like those moments happen and you keep that clarity of vision, you keep that missionary zeal and keep fighting and keep pushing. And there is another side to the, that chasm yeah. or that, you know, the struggle, the dark night of the soul has a dawn and to keep pressing through and know that particularly, I think that the missionary founders, sustainability related founders who, who are pouring a lot of their life into their work. And it, it's, it's probably applicable to startup founders generally. When those moments happen, they're impersonal and they're taken personally because a lot of identity can be wrapped up in that work. And so I would say, kind of take comfort in, take courage in the fact that those moments happen and, and those are moments where you grow. And even if it fails, there are moments that you grow and learn from and incorporate into the next, into the next lessons. So how do you find great founders and great startups? What are you, like, what types of things are you looking for? Are these people that are coming to you? Are you doing kind of the inbound versus outbound? Are you looking at certain places? Where are you looking? Like, what are the, I don't want to say like, you know, check the blocks, but what are, what are the things that are kind of signals to you that something might be, you know, worth investing in or worth taking a look in? In the job of, of being a venture capitalist, our, our job is to find great businesses that are going to, that are going to grow from zero to hundred million dollars, billion dollars, hundred billion dollars of value in the dream scenario over the course of a very, very short time. And, and that's a, an incredibly hard thing to do and a difficult thing to find. In venture capital, I think one of the big, big differentiators or the big challenges of the job is finding the next great big company. So where do you look? That's the question. It's a mix of things. I think that traditionally a lot of a lot of venture used to be inbound where you'd kind of set up your shingle, you'd establish a presence at a, at a handful of universities or with executives at a handful of companies and they would refer a company into you and then you'd take a meeting and if you liked it, you'd say yes. And if you didn't, you'd say no. Those are the days of maybe 20 years ago, but that's changed dramatically now. And the venture industry is much more competitive as I think it should be. And it's probably good for both folks who are competing in the venture industry, as well as for founders who, who want to get the smartest, most responsive, most value-added investors. So that means that we spend most of our time, and in fact, most all of the investments that we've ever made have been companies that we have reached out to first. And when you reach out to a company before they're raising money, the conversations are easier. You can get to know them. There's nothing, there's no immediate we need to get something done in a week and you need to get to know us, figure out whether you like us, figure out whether you trust us, figure out whether you want to work with us for the next five years, conversation that is that, is that compressed. So we spend a lot of time looking, looking for businesses. And tactically what that means is we are as series B and maybe series B and later investors, we're looking through the portfolios of of other venture investors that are a little bit earlier stage of some angel networks of some influencers seed investors that are making making bets in companies that are in our target industries and we track those pretty methodically in terms of what the business is whether we know them how to get to know them before they might raise around if we have any indication of how long it will be before they raise around and then if it's something that looks like it's a fit for us we reach out and ideally that that first outreach is something like hey we expect you're not raising capital now, but it would be great to get to know you. And for businesses that that are aligned with both a mission towards sustainability and in some of our target industries, there aren't as many venture capitalists hunting in those areas. Yeah. And, and we're okay with that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we'll have conversations with founders who say, gosh, a lot of venture capitalists don't really reach out to us or so they certainly don't, they're not thinking proactively about 
transportation or transportation is different. Transportation is hot right now, but they're not thinking practically about agriculture. They're not thinking practically about construction. And we like having those conversations being a little bit off the beaten path. Some other venture guys would say we're crazy, but we're totally okay with it. And then we also do searches of trade magazines and we do searches of trade conferences where more companies and potential customers will show up than startups because we work in industries where the customer's voice really, really matters a lot. And I guess I'd say as one of our best sources for potential companies is talking to big Fortune 100, 200, 500 companies that are in our target industries about the startups that they that they may be desperate enough to work with and why and what problem would that startup be solving? And to the extent that they're working with a startup, who did they say no to? That is a big technology vendor that they said no to and why? So we, we spent a lot of time with incumbent companies at conferences and and scouring you know trade magazines and things like that and also tracking the earlier stages of of portfolios but i would say there's definitely been a shift in the last 10 plus years in the venture industry towards a much more outbound approach and i think that that leads to better alignment for everybody we typically like to go to meetings with startups knowing what they do and and kind of believing in it there's a weird dynamic that can get set up between venture and and startups where if a startup founder is feeling like they need to justify the existence of their business every time they meet with their investor, something's totally, something's really wrong. Oh yeah. Versus when a startup and a venture investor are totally aligned with that with that mission, and ideally, you know, you could find a venture investor who who believes in it like the team does. Then it's about okay, how do how do we help? How do we amplify this? How do we get around whatever roadblock is up and just keep you know keep working at it? Let's switch into some story time here. Okay. I want some good. A good Joe Lacob story. I know you got one. <laughs> Joe Lacob. My favorite Joe Lacob story is actually related. So, so Joe Lacob was a partner at, at Kleiner Perkins, very successful partner at Kleiner Perkins. And when he he decided to kind of retire from KP, he was he has always been a basketball player. And he played basketball. He plays ba- basketball in a pickup league and had been, kind of, I think, kind of a dream forever had been to be involved with, with an NBA team. And the way this is totally hearsay, apocryphal story, whatever the way to say it, but I'll tell it anyway, because I, I like remembering it this way, Yeah, was that there was a setup that there were multiple parties bidding for, for the Warriors at the time. And apparently everyone thought, everyone just figured Larry Ellison of Oracle was going to buy the Warriors. It was just like that was going to happen. And Joe didn't think that you know needed to be so hustled and did every possible thing he could to put in the right bid, the highest bid, the winning bid and won and you know got the team which was awesome and and we i mean even around the firm at least i i kind of was floored by the fact that that was happening and then and he had been a, a li- again lifelong basketball fan fully committed to basketball one of the most competitive people that i've ever come across in my life and the first night that he was introduced to the warriors fans chris mullen stood up in front of like the full oracle arena yep and got up and said, hey, folks, like here we are to usher in the future of Warriors basketball. Here is the new owner, you know, or the new lead owner of the Warriors, Joe Lacob. And the stadium just booed yep. like crazy, yep. like people standing up booing. And you've got Chris Mullen, Hall of, Fame, Hall of Famer warrior there. And Mullen is like, guys, no, 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 come on, Dub Nation. I don't even know if it was called Dub Nation at the time, but it was like, come on, guys, let the man speak let the man speak. He's a fan. He's going to change this program. And like, they didn't even let Joe speak yep. that night, which was, I kind of like, oh man, what did he get himself into? You know, got got what he wished for here. And is he going to be able to, to do this? And he's going to be able to turn it all around. And he did. 
And that, that was pretty awesome. Actually, and then one other story because it's just really fun. Yeah, go ahead. We used to have, at Connor Perkins, we used to have CEO summits. And a uh, CEO summit is this, this great event where the CEOs of portfolio companies will all gather at some location. At the time, we were, we were gathered in the, the Monterey area. And the first CEO summit, or, or there was a CEO summit right after Joe had bought the team. So he came over and he's like, one of the activities of the day is we'll get some of our portfolio company CEOs out to play a pickup game with some of our, our oh Warriors D-League prospects. And you look back and it was like he brought, I think it was, it was Steph and Clay that were there. And you look back and you're like, no freaking way. You know, and, and, and at the time they, they may well have been on Santa Cruz. And it was just like, those guys were out before, before anyone had any idea what was to come. And it was, it was just great to see, it is great to see Joe go from the, those first moments with the team and sort of being the underdog to, to where they are now, which is just uh, incredibly fun to watch. Well, you know, so there's, there's a great article that Bill Simmons wrote about how to lose your fan base in 40 years or something like that, that catalogs, I'm, I'm a lifelong Warriors fan, grew up in Oakland. So yep. we're basically just like Warriors leadership did every single thing wrong for 40 years. They Every draft pick, everything. And so basically, you know, Joe and Peter uh, coming to buy the team. And the first thing they do was trade like one of the best players away and get Andrew Bogut, who is injured. So basically just like completely punting, like tanking that year, yeah. which ended up being, you know, one of the most savvy decisions that they made. But it was this idea that was like, you know, basically you're going to come in and then on Chris Mullen night, you know, on the big night and it's yeah. like going to come talk. And it's funny because you see this kind of, especially a venture capitalist that is that is one at many levels that yes. has been a part of winning culture that you know kind of that first speech when you come into the company right of like this thing but yeah there's there's companies where you come in and or in this case you know the entire warriors world that know that change is coming and are just like we're just fed up we're fed up with all the stuff we're fed up with like losing we're fed up with all this and uh, you know he's he's famous for saying that we're light years ahead of everybody but one of the things you know andre guadalo was recently on on chris lockhead who's a friend of ours his podcast and andre said he's like the warriors the way that we fly the way that we travel the way that our meals are the way that all that stuff is hands down the best in the league and he's like i work you know i played for for different teams and he tells all the rookies like it ain't that way for everyone like it ain't that way but that's the thing that that Joe and Peter and and their whole team and Rick Waltz and and um, and everybody believed from the very beginning is like where we can win, where we can like you know fight and win on the periphery of this is we you can have advantages. It's a it's a cap, right? Like basketball is a cap. It's a it's a fixed pie. It's a soft cap, but it's it's still a fixed pie, right? Like everyone has an equal chance to be successful. But the ways that you can win on the periphery of that stuff is through how well you treat the team, how well you manage those sort of things. And like you think about that from a founder's perspective and it's like, it's the same way of how do you win talent? Like how do you win and get, how do you get, you know, Boogie Cousins to come over on a one-year contract for, you know, one fourth of what he's worth, one fifth of what he's yeah. worth, one sixth of what he's worth. It's like you get everything together and you build a culture that's, that's a winning culture. Or how, and, did you, how did you get Kevin Durant in the first place? Yeah. And ultimately a lot of that comes down to the fact that like, you know, Steph Curry is the most like generational <laughs> talent. Like, you know, I mean, you, they, you know, those sort of things, obviously at the end of the day, you have to have A players. And if you don't have A players, then you know what it's it's yeah. really really hard to win. It's yeah. virtually impossible to win if you don't have if you don't have eight players. But they once you have a, them, 
You need to focus on keeping them. And there's yep. ways that you can do that. And I think that that's what their whole organization did. The best of all that is that they took what they can control. The rest of the stuff is a lot of, it's a lottery. Quite literally, it's a lottery. And you see a lot of teams have like injuries all the time and all this other stuff, poor trainers, poor eating habits. Like it's like if you're going to, you know, if you have a $2 billion asset, you should probably invest in your player's health and safety. Right. And I think, I mean, I think that they built that culture and organization to win the whole time, you know, and they had their eyes on it from the, from that Mullen night, they had their eyes on a championship and people weren't taking them seriously and they've done it. It's been a lot of, it's been a lot of fun to watch. I'm interested in seeing how Cousins actually oh, integrates so into that, like into the team and, and the whole, the whole thing. I'm pretty excited about that he's, too. It's going to be, they're gonna, <laughs> he's so good. Oh my, yeah. I can't even like, this is, I think it's really the fun. first, you know, for the, for all of our audience that doesn't watch basketball, or yeah. sports is already tuned out, but yeah, it's going to be crazy. It's the first time like ever that, that you're going to have like two or uh, four players that average 20 points, a, over 20 points a game in the previous year on the same team. So you know, everyone, the Warriors get a lot of, a lot of crap from, from people, you know, for a lot of different reasons and, you know, whatever, but the fan side of things, like we suck for 40 years, we're the laughing stock <laughs> for 40 years, you know, it's like yeah. being the Browns, right? Yeah. So like yeah. if the Browns, you know, with their young nucleus goes on to win, like, you know, four championships or whatever, it's like, I'm not going to get sick of the Browns winning. Cause I know what it, as a fan of, of something that was torturous, I, you know, I, I totally, uh, you know, have to rebuke yep. the haters a little yep. bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's about it. Anything, anything else, anything that, you know, people, if, if they're interested in learning more or, uh, any plugs. Sure. I guess I just say sustainability, maybe taking that theme right to the finish. Sustainability is a theme that 10 years ago when we invested in it was, was hot. And then went through a, went through a period where there were a lot of folks who thought that what they wanted to do with their life that might be related to sustainability, that might be related to a mission around climate efficiency, those types of things, they might have to compromise and not be able to do that while they did their career. I'd say the last few years, we've come back to a moment where there are some awesome companies getting built that are mission-driven, that are thinking about sustainability, that have carried forward that, you know, carry that torch around what could be around global emissions and, and sustainability and everything else. And they're building some great businesses. And we're really excited to be working with those companies, really excited to pull more people into those companies, and really excited to, to be building an investment fund and a firm that is committed to sustainability and committed to building great venture capital that generates great returns all at the same time. And, and we don't think that you need to to have one or the other. So we're, we're really excited about that. And yeah, always looking for, exclusive. they're not mutually exclusive. And, you know, we're excited about that. We're building, we're growing and always happy to meet great people, always happy to, to meet with, with great new companies and excited about what the future holds. If someone is looking to, you know, be a part of some of that, where can they go? Should they, should they check out the... Yeah, check out, our website is, is g2vp.com. We've got our portfolio companies up on that website. So check out G2VP, see if there are portfolio companies that are of interest. There's another website called Venture Loop, which is just ventureloop, all one word, .com that shows job postings from aggregated venture-backed companies that, that may be of interest. And you know we're on Twitter and, and everything else and on LinkedIn as well. Uh, so very happy to be in touch to the extent that there, that there may be a fit or to the extent that you want to, to hear more about this stuff. At G2VPLLC on Twitter. So... David, thanks so much for hanging out. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Ian. Really enjoyed it. This was part two of our interview with David Mount. If you missed part one, be sure to check out mission.org daily and definitely hit that subscribe button so you never miss out again. Thanks for listening.
Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.